This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Slate's Audio Book Club. I'm Jacob Weisberg, chairman of the Slate Group, and I'm joined today by Troy Patterson, Slate's TV critic, and Jody Rosen, who's Slate's music critic. Today we're going to talk about Super Sad True Love Story, a new novel by Gary Steingart. And just to get our conversation started today, Troy, let me ask you to tell us what the story of this book is. Well, the book is set in uh, an unspecified but very near future, many of the features of which may have already come to pass by the time this uh, discussion gets posted on the site. The United States is laboring under uh, a crushing debt, and the dollar is pegged to the yuan. People have, rather than smartphones, these sort of viciously cunning ones called apparats. Yeah, there are umlauts on all those A's. Is that how I want to pronounce it? Yeah. Um, And these uh, project the... This endless stream of images and data, and moreover, they um, talk back to the universe. And that uh, every street corner in Manhattan is um, uh, features a credit poll that'll uh, read and broadcast your credit rating. Uh, moreover, there's a setting uh, if you change the community parameters, um, it uh, and you're you know a young man on the make in a bar. It'll broadcast your personality ranking and your fuckability rating. <laughs> and young women who, uh, you know, hear people in their teens and 20s have uh, sort of no sense of history, and women are taken to, um, you know, dressing in uh, a brand of jeans called onion skins, which are transparent. Uh, and uh, I think the most popular make of panties is called Total Surrender, which... Uh, <laughs> turn off with a push of a button, come off with a push of the button. So this is to say that uh, the book is something of a science fiction novel, and as our hero, Lenny Abramoff, writes to his diary at one point, the true subject of science fiction is death, 
not life. It will all end. Uh, Lenny is employed in post-human services, um, sort of a at a business that promises to uh, extend the life of high net worth individuals, uh, perhaps indefinitely. Lenny says in the first line of the book that he's decided that he's never going to die. And his strategy for that involves uh, both uh, becoming a customer of post-human services. Um, and he also uh, intends to be sustained by the love of one Eunice Park, uh, a Korean woman who uh, he meets in uh, a bravura opening passage set in Rome and uh, eventually cohabitates with in New York City. The book is the story of their relationship, the them falling in love and then what happens to their their romance under the conditions of this strange, oppressive society. Right. But, Jody, what kind of book is this? I mean, Troy just used a whole bunch of, bunch of different terms. Science fiction sounds, it sounded in part like a very dark comedy. It sounded like a social satire. It's a romance, too. I mean, what's it like reading this book, and what's the writing like? Well, the, the writing is um, alternately hyper-caffeinated and intensely lyrical and uh you know funny funny even uh, you know at the same time i mean it's often it's often all three things at once uh steingart steingart i think is a really masterful stylist but um you know the, the, it's it's a it's a very it's a very fun book to read despite the fact that it's um an incredibly disturbing vision of um the the uh, the near future or the present depending on how you look at it i mean i i guess it's a it's a dystopian novel if you want to get i i i'm sure that's what all our literature professors would tell us well, we'll stop for a second. Yeah. That is I, that term I think has been thrown about in every review I've read of the book. What is a dystopian novel? Uh, a dystopian novel. <laughs> you want me to give a chapter? Yeah. In right there? <laughs> um, a, a dystopian novel is a is a bleak vision of the future. I mean, is that? Do you can you can anyone help me with anything that's any more specific than that? Is a dystopian novel one that uh, sort of speaks to um, the. Uh, Sorrows and miseries of contemporary society by exaggerating um, th- their features. I, th- I think that's a pretty good definition. I mean, I guess technically the definition is it's some it's a reversal of a utopian story. You know, as opposed to imagining a paradise, it imagines a paradise turned into a kind of hell. And you know, the most famous dystopian novels, Brave New World, nineteen eighty four, which is you know clearly the touchstone for this book. I mean, 1984 is the story of Winston and Julia, it, it, these two humans caught up in this totalitarian society where people are spied on throughout their life, and this a story of how this repression makes their love impossible and crushes it. And that's the kind of dystopian novel I felt this was. Uh, yeah, I, I think I would add that uh, to be a dystopian novel, it's not enough to just... Uh, imagine a bleak future. I think that um, it's essential that the protagonist is uh, alienated from society, that sort of communities and relationships become difficult, if not impossible, to sustain. And that's true here, that loneliness and aloneness are words that keep coming up. So expand on that a little, Troy. Why does this character, Lenny, not fit into this society? Well, for one thing, he's sort of he's a 20th century man in um, this 21st century that has sort of no respect for 
for literature, for one thing. Lenny makes a lot of the fact that he has this wall of books in his apartment. Uh, and books are largely shunned in the society. People find them smelly. And uh, as, as it goes along, he um, finds reason to uh, chat about Chekhov and about Milan Kundura. And a lot of the most lyrical and beautiful scenes are uh, sort of elegiac uh, and nostalgic, um, which can be tricky in books. But uh, I think that part of the power of the prose comes from um, it's very much an earned nostalgia, and it's not sort of sappy. It's it's brave. Yeah, I, I, I think it's it's especially effective because of the um, uh, the sort of intensity of the satire that surrounds it, and and the fact that the book is so absurd and and broadly comic for the most part. That when he shifts his, when he shifts his um, cadence into a, into a more lyrical. Um, mode when he when he starts writing, as Troy says in this elegiac way, it's really powerful and it doesn't come off as sappy. And again, yeah, and I think Troy's right that the, that the uh, the lyricism is is earned because he's set up this both um, sort of blackly comic and terrifying world so effectively. Do you have an example, Jody, of his lyricism? We were you were mentioning beginning a passage that stood out for you. Um, there's a there's a passage I really liked on page 96. This is when Lenny is returning to Manhattan on the Staten Island ferry after visiting his friends in the in the hipster mecca of St. <laughs> George, Staten Island. I mean, one of the things that really stood out for me about this book, and I'd love to talk about, is it seems to me that it's a um, it's a um, archetypally New York novel, a great New York novel, which has a lot to say about New York City past, present, and future. And uh, so in this upside-down world, Lenny lives out in Manhattan. And, uh, you know, all his friends are in Staten Island. Anyway, he's returning um, after an evening with his friends uh, uh, in, on Staten Island, and, and he writes, and um, Steingart writes, The rankings of other passengers swept across the bow, the ugly ruined men emoting their desire and despair over the rail and into the dark, relentless waves. A pink mist hovered over the mostly residential area once known as the Financial District, casting everything in the past tense. A father kept kissing his tiny son's head over over and over with a sad insistence, making those of us with bad parents or no parents feel even more lonely and alone. We watched the silhouettes of oil tankers guessing at the warmth of their holds. The city approached. The three bridges connecting Brooklyn and Manhattan, one long necklace of light, gradually differentiated themselves. The Empire State extinguished its crown and tucked itself behind and tucked itself away behind a lesser building. On the Brooklyn side, the gold-tipped Williamsburg Savings Bank, cornered by the half-built abandoned glass giants around it, quietly gave us the finger. Only the bankrupt <laughs> Freedom Tower, empty and stern in profile, like an angry man risen and ready to punch, celebrated itself throughout the night. Every returning New Yorker asks the question, is this still my city? I have a ready answer cloaked in obstinate despair. It is. And if it's not, I will love it all the more. I will love it to the point where it becomes mine again. That's wonderful. I mean, there is one of the things I thought was incredible about this book was this sort of immigrant love song to New York City in the middle, buried in the middle of this dystopian vision of New York gone to absolute hell, you know, which that passage captures just the beauty of the city that's still there. Yeah, that's one of the things about, I mean, as you say, buried in this book, I mean, it, it, there, there, there are two immigrant stories being told here, because Eunice Park, Lenny's uh, 
lover, Lenny's girlfriend, um, is a Korean immigrant, and Lenny is this um, Russian Jewish son of Russian Jewish immigrants, or rather, Eunice's parents are are, are Korean American immigrants, and um, and so there, there, it's it, it, this is a really sort of a um, black absurdist take on a, a, the classic a classic New York novel genre that is the the you know the kind of bootstrapping immigrant makes good in the big city um here that vision goes terribly wrong and you get this uh, fantastic lyricism fantastic comedy around sex and food which are both very much in the immigrant uh context did, did you note any of any of that troy uh, it's great eating scenes uh, they're great eating scenes um and uh for one thing, it, it cast me back to Stuttgart's first novel, Russian Debutante's Handbook, which begins with an amazing uh, description of a Soprasada sandwich, <laughs> um, the, the, the sort of the rapture of this meat. Yeah, it's um, both of those facets of the book point towards the way it's um, sort of a book about comfort and when he's yearning to be nurtured. It was only on... Um, looking at the book a second time, and you tell me if you think I'm reaching too much or if uh, this is cheesy, I noticed that, uh, you know, Eunice Park, Park, a standard Korean last name, there is also something uh, kind of idyllic uh, and there's a quality of uh, an oasis in what Lenny is seeking from her. That he wouldn't have gotten if he called her Eunice Kim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and, and I, I do think it's important that there's... Uh, Another one of those uh, sort of beautiful, tender scenes set in uh, Central Park, which is where they they share an important kiss. Um, and meanwhile, I, I think we've forgotten to mention that uh, the United States is bogged down in uh, sort of a vaguely specified conflict in Venezuela. Uh, and a lot of veterans who uh, haven't gotten their pay are uh, camped out in Tompkins Square Park, where uh, Eunice does some, uh, some volunteering. So these are two images of... Of parks and downtown and huh. Tompkins Square Park, people making this sort of rude shelter and trying to survive, and Central Park sort of hanging on as this sort of paradise amid concrete and guns. Yeah. Uh, but and and but of course, uh, in later in the novel, both parks become scenes of combat, um, where um, American National Guard soldiers, who we later find are really um, in the employ of the multinational corporation for which Lenny works um, uh, open fire on um, American <laughs> citizens um, on um, on the the poor and disaffected veterans and other ethnic New Yorkers so and what is the political regime I mean it's a little it's a little foggy but it sort of seems that America is still basically some sort of democracy, but there's a there's a shadowy president who's like Donald Rumsfeld, and there's this right wing media which is the, you have your choice between Fox News Prime or Fox. Uh, I, I think Fox it's Fox News Liberty Prime, Prime and right. Fox Liberty Ultra. Lo- right. yeah, Liberty Ultra. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, there there is. I, if I remember correctly, there's a there's kind of a puppet president called Joe Cortez. Yeah. Is that right? right? And then there's um, a kind of Rumsfeldian. Uh, Secretary of Defense figure named Rubenstein. Okay. Well, I don't think we ever get his first name, um, <laughs> but I think it's Im- important that he's Jewish, given um, the fact that Lenny Abramoff is, and there, there's you know, <laughs> this is a very Jewish book. Yeah, um, and, and also, are, are and, we certain that it's a democracy? Because all yeah. the indications are that there's sort of one party called nicely the bipartisan party. Right, right, right. 
good. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's not it's not ex- it's not exactly a uh, democracy. Um, it's sort of a. Um, uh, I, it, you know, the funny thing about actually the the um, the political vision of this book, I think, is that it's not. Even though you know he, the targets that we've talked about, the satirical targets we've talked about thus far, uh, the Rumsfeldian Secretary of Defense, the, the Fox News, all these right-wing media outlets, those those seem like sort of typical left-wing targets. Um, Steingart is really an equal, equal opportunity satirist across the political spectrum, um, and um, for instance, the the company for which he works, his job is to, um, you know. Uh, he, he tries to find high net worth individuals who are who um, he can target for selling a kind of sham life extension pro regime, um, and uh, every everywhere everyone that uh, works at the company are sort of young bourgeois bohemian go getters um, whose diet is a. You know, I guess you would say like They're a hyper, hyper macro back, yeah. hyper macrobiotic diet. So, so his 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 targets are left wing. Bobos, as well as right wing. <laughs> do, well, do we think that there's still a left wing? Because the the feeling I get is that uh, the average citizen is uh, sort of been beaten into this apathy, or is resigned to the domination of the bipartisan party. So there are still these college students and these former soldiers who will wage protest, but. Most people are stupefied by social media and shopping right. and entertainment. I mean, actually, what I took to be, I think this is a very interesting kind of political take, as opposed to the classic dystopian novel of totalitarianism, where the all-powerful all state is watching you all the time, and people are spying on each other, and their freedom has been taken away by the government. Here, people have given up their freedom through their entrancement with media devices. They carry these, as you were saying, toward the beginning, these operats, which constantly connect them and give them all information about each other. So you can immediately find out everyone's uh, credit credit score, their sexual attractiveness, and how healthy they are, whether they're, so whether they're good prospects. So people have kind of voluntarily participated in the system where they've given up all privacy and everything is a kind of commodity. But there's no... The, the, it seems to me in that vision, the state hasn't taken that away. People have fallen into this. You know, I was uh, looking over this book this morning in the coffee shop where I spend all my time, and the, <laughs> the acquaintance sitting next to me uh, had a quick grouse about um, uh, FaceTime, which was this iPhone feature that I wasn't even aware existed, where... Um, you know, it's eight o'clock in the morning, and the the person you're speaking to is looking at you. That is, I hope, a relevant aside. Well, you know, I had Jody mentioned this at the, at the outset, but I had, for me, the basic experience of reading this book was thinking, Gary Steingart, what a great absurdist satirist he is! What a dark vision of the future! And then looking around and realizing he was describing something that already exists in v- very close to the form he was talking about it. Yeah, you know, I I I guess the the my reservations about the book. I kept wanting to, um, I found myself wanting to take issue with the vision. That is to say, I I I wanted to, I wanted to um, find Steingart's uh, satire too broad. And there were occasions that I did, for instance, um, the the society's hyper hypersexualized to the point where um, kindergartners. Um, 
watch pornography. Like there is no there doesn't there's there's a passage where um, I think. Uh, we should say that the, the character Eunice Park, the, the, the book is structured as um, diary entries by, by Lenny Abramoff interspersed with um, email exchanges right. and, chat and, and you know, text message or chat exchanges between uh, Eunice Park and her sister and her friends. And in that sense, it's structured as a epistolary novel, so-called, right. where it's based on the letters written by various people. But sorry, go on. Right. But in any case, I think in one of the exchanges, uh, email exchanges are actually there uh, – I should say uh, global teen exchanges. The entire internet, I think, is is now called something is called global teens. Or everybody, the only way people communicate is through a a a, a, a network or a, a um an interface called global teens, which is Facebook, which projected is, right. five years into the future, right, right, um, maybe fifty years, but. Uh, uh, Eunice Park and her friend are recalling, you know, the the porn, the, the the their favorite Vietnamese porn star from their kindergarten years, and that sort of, you know, that sort of stuff. Okay, it's funny, but it seems it seemed a little cheap to me, and there was a lot of stuff like that. I I found the part of the book that that irked me a bit was Steingart's vision of sort of sexual mores, and his um, which struck me as somewhere between. I felt like it, we were getting an unmediated glimpse of the author's psyche that made me a little uncomfortable, yeah. as opposed to some kind of you know sharp indictment of you know a hyper pornographied contemporary culture. Right. Well, two things. I think one in some Don DeLillo book, there's sort of a bit of satire that I never found successful, where a character is talking about child pornography and making clear it's not pornography with children; it's <laughs> pornography for children. And that seemed to me a bit uh, – that's not what human nature is like. Also, you know, I have a friend who's a, a fan of Steingart and a very good reader, but who also, having lived in China for three years, is uh, ready to discount the book because of its vision of the sort of the rise of the supremacy of China, which is sort of, you know, this idea that floats around sort of easily and alarmistly, you know, when in fact – you know, this book isn't set that far in the future, and I mean, you've been to China, Jacob. It's it's not a first-rate country. <laughs> well, but the, but the book, it's funny. I mean, I might, if your friend knows a lot about China, but I don't think this book has anything to say about China. It has something to say about the relative economic power of the United States and China, and all the book projects is at some point in the future where China's economy is much bigger than ours. We have such debt to China that they have a lot of power over us, and the the yuan has replaced the dollar as the currency that has kind of permanent value. I don't know. I found all of that. You know, yes, no, it's not five years away, but you know, fifty years away is you know is will the will Chinese be will China be a bigger economy than than the U.S. Probably. I guess I, it, since we're talking about gripes about the book, yeah. um, I. Uh, also, um, this kind of picture of a of a post literate age, and you know, where right. people have sort of lost the ability to read and to talk, right? In this book, yeah. They, in fact, in fact, talking is referred to as verbaling. Verbaling, and, and uh, college students do much less reading than scanning, yeah. right? And, and yeah, and they and you know, people are constantly streaming, sort of live streaming their lives. I think the you know the kind of equivalent of blogs are um, these little. 
as they're called, media shows, these broadcasts that people do over the apparats. So, for instance, two of Lenny's um, friends have have these kind of shows where they have you know tens of thousands of um, people who follow their stream, and they and they and they live broadcast from the bar where they happen to be drinking. But uh, you know, I I mean, one thing about the internet is it. I don't think that the internet necessarily portends the end of literacy. It might end it, it portend the end of of print print media, and so I mean, not that that's um, you know a major flaw with the book. And it's you know if you go through a novel like this, ticking off, okay, here it seems like you know he might be ac- he might be onto something. Here he's not. That's 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 it seems to me a sort of silly way to read a book like this. However, those things those things irked me a little bit, and I and I, I felt like they sort of detracted from some, well, some of the do, impact. Do you were I think I disagree with you a little bit there, Jody, because I mean, don't you? Don't you worry that people are losing or will lose the ability to read books basically because of what happens to their attention span in a totally connected, media-saturated environment? Yeah, I guess. But but also, I mean, I feel like there's a lot of um – there, there, the, the the vision the vision of the kind of internet age and I guess you'd call in this book sort of post internet age or internet 5.0 <laughs> um, is is um, you know there's no beauty there there's no I mean what the among other things that the that the internet has awakened is incredible interest in history you know communities that uh, of people that form around fascinating arcane interests you know which are actually hyper literate you know um i mean the fact that i you know, I, I don't i mean i just don't i mean i guess we could just leave it we could just leave it there to, to me it didn't um yeah it, it didn't especially work for me there's just a, there's there's a, a bunch of things that sort of landed with a thud for me and didn't ring true and i think it goes back to what's what troy said about human nature you know um uh i i understand for the purposes of a of a absurdist novel why Steingart would go there but I didn't some you know there wasn't they didn't especially resonate for me An- another thing is the love affair between <laughs> Lenny and Eunice I think was sort of flawed it, it's sort of it, the how instantly Lenny uh, th- this this woman became Lenny's you know muse and lodestar Troy talked about that um this the the scene where they met in Rome as a kind of bravura scene, and I think there it, it was they meet at a kind of um, orgy sex party at the home of Lenny's then lover, who's a kind of older Roman, older hairy swarthy Roman woman. That's what we learned about her. But um, <laughs> but you know Lenny sees this cute Korean girl, talks to her for five minutes. They have a night out. They have um, you know bad ham fisted sex. And then all of a sudden, she's it. And I, I've read many novels that I think that I think were more successful in um, conveying sort of love at first sight than this one. So that's interesting. I mean, I, I I think I, I think I agree with that somewhat. That in in that the way he fixates on women first the with the, the prior girlfriend from the party, and then this woman he sees across the room and falls in love with, doesn't seem to have that much to do with her. It has a lot to do with him and his fantasy of of romantic relationship, which he slots this woman into, you know, against her reluctance at least, and ultimately un- unsuccessfully. And and that was a and that was I think um, that's 
uh, a successful thing about the book, I would say, is that um, you know uh, Steingart is really subtle in his depiction of Lenny. Yeah, he's not a particularly appealing character. And when you come to the end of the book, you realize the various ways in which he's treated people badly, um, un, un, unwittingly uh, <laughs> killed his friend, and and you know presumably dozens of other people on the Staten Island ferry. So I don't know. Right. I don't. I, I sign on with uh, with Jacob's view of the relationship, and I think that that's what sells it because we we understand that uh, that Lenny has a special weakness for Korean women that will uh, sort of blind him to some of Eunice's less attractive aspects, and it's also clear early on that there's sort of a desperation in his attachment to her uh, that he's looking to her as this kind of fountain of youth. And so, you know, despite whatever is uh, genuine and tender in his feeling for her, there's also sort of a sense of hollowness, which isn't, I think, very present in the first half of the book. Uh, but as things go on and their um, sort of the intensity of this romance recedes, uh, it feels perfectly natural that, um, that things should fall apart in the way that they do. Yeah. I want to get back just uh, before we finish to this sort of idea of technology in the book, because I think we might have left a little bit of what seemed to me to be a false impression, which is that the book is anti-technology, that it's some kind of argument that all of this is leading to the you know inability of people to read, and he hates it. Um, it seemed to me that... You know, the book also uh, expresses this kind of delight in technology, and that it's part of part of the the subtlety of it is showing you the sort of the sort of science fiction miraculous part. Imagine what we'll be able to do with these things in the future, but also look at what may happen to us if we do. Did you, uh, Troy? Did you have that kind of? Did you have the same takeaway about it that I did? Uh, you're stumping me, so I'm going to meditate on that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess I was thinking about it a little bit, you know, as, as a, in relation to 1984 again. Because, you know, w- one of the interesting things about 1984, as I remember it, is it, it's based very much on English socialism after the Second World War. You know, the, the organization is called INGSOC. But Orwell, of course, was a Labor Party supporter of English socialism. And it wasn't the book wasn't written to say we're going down a you know a path of no return and this is not what society should be doing. He was sort of taking some of the premises of his own politics and things that he supported and projecting them into a negative dimension in the future. And I guess I uh, because the book is in, so closely modeled on 1984 in a lot of ways. I felt that Steingart really was doing the same thing. He wasn't necessarily trying to say, don't go there. He was sort of saying, imagine the worst that could happen based on where we're going. I'll buy that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm buying it. I, I don't know. Uh, if, uh, I, I like this book very much. Um, tell me if I'm being picky when I wonder if um, it doesn't quite get the momentum that I want from it because of how it works as an epistolary book, an epistolary novel. The, we're um, alternating between these uh, richly written, wonderful scenes of you know, Lenny confiding to his diary, and then in a different typeface, these records of Eunice's emails and instant messages, which are 
necessarily kind of semi-literate, and I wonder if they, for one thing, I wonder if they slow things down a bit and make the book more episodic than they might be. I suppose, on the other hand, they're necessary to moving things forward, but um, I wonder if they move things forward a bit more um, choppily. Yeah, I mean, those those, uh, Eunice's emails and such felt to me like they were, you know, I felt the gear, the cogs turning a little bit there. I mean, of, I mean they, they felt like um, they were important structurally as like a device to um, convey what she's thinking and to contrast it with Lenny's myopic vision of their romance and the world and also to give, um, you know, uh, there, there, there's, it's a, in those emails there's um, a lot of funny slang and you get to, you get to see how, um, you know, a 25-year-old woman communicates with her contemporaries in this society, which is, you know, there's there's any there's there's a lot of um, God, what are the the crazy crazy sort of internet acronyms bandied about? Um, so I mean, they were funny, but I agree with you. I don't think I mean I think this book could have worked just as well if it was if it was only a first-person novel told in Lenny's voice. I don't know, if, and in and, and the, the, the passages, I mean, the sections in which Lenny's um, writing his diary are, are so great, because for me, um, it's, not, it's not just the kind of, um, you know, the satire with this, this, this dystopia that, that really struck me. It was the really, you know, just in passing, all kinds of wisdom <laughs> um, and insight that Steingart gets off. I'm thinking, there's a passage on page 14. He's talking, um, he's in Italy at this point. He says, that's what I admire about youngish Italians, the slow diminution of ambition, the recognition that the best is far behind them. We Americans can learn a lot from their graceful decline. <laughs> or uh, another passage on page 84, he's talking about his, um, his relationship with his two male friends, Vishnu and Noah. And Steingart writes, We all grew up with a fairly tense idea of male friendship for which the permissive times now allowed us to compensate, and I often wished that our crude words and endless posturing were code for affection and understanding. In some male societies, slang and ritualistic embraces f- form the entire culture along with the occasional call to take up the spear. And it's, just, it's, it's, it's moments like that, I think, that are, you know, where Steingart is, you know, revealed, I mean, Steingart is just an incredibly smart, wise, sensitive human being. And he just gets at a lot of truth about human nature. Judy, I, I love Steingart's writing. This is I've read all three of his books, and this is my favorite of them. Um, but this has been greeted, really, in a different way from the others. I mean, this has been treated, I think, probably along with um, Jonathan Franzen's Freedom as the kind of important book of the season, or one of the really important books of the year. As a final question for you both, do you think this book has the makings of a classic that is, I would define it as, do you think people will be reading and talking about this book in 20 years? I think so, yeah. You know, one of my beliefs as a reader, uh, that what uh, what really sets apart first-rate prose is uh, the control of light, um, instead of writing about daylight or room light, um, to which end I want to read uh, a passage that uh, Jody and I were talking about as we were settling in. Lenny's talking about his friend Noah. Noah told me there's a day during summer when the sun hits the broad avenues at such an angle that you experience the sensation of the whole city being flooded by a melancholy 20th century light, even the most prosaic unloved buildings appearing bright and nuclear at the edge of your vision, and that when this happens, you want to both cry for something lost and run out there and welcome the decline of the day. He made it sound like an urban rapture, his aging face taking on a careful glow as if he was borrowing some of the light of which he spoke. 
Yeah, I liked it very much. I think that there's something Nabokovian in the way that he controls that sense of light, and also in sort of the elegiac quality of the book. The the um, his way of writing about memory and the past in a way that's um, very sensitive and evocative, but honest. Um, and in fact, in thinking about that, I was led to uh, pick up uh, Nabokov's Speak Memory to look for um, the exact phrasing of one particular line that came to mind at a few points in this book, um, which is, uh, the cradle rocks above an abyss and common sense tells us that our existence is but a brief crack of light between two eternities of darkness. And I think that the mood evoked there is um, what's going on at the best parts of this book and um, that that's where, why it's going to be durable. Yeah, I, I agree with Troy completely. And, and, and the, the book did have a Nabokovian quality for, for me as well. And, you know, Nabokov is my godhead just like he's everyone else's um and you know steingart really does have a great um command of writing about you know landscape and and consciousness and that is you know i i i I'm, you know i there's a part of me that resists these kinds of novels that are broad social satires because to me that some that it strikes me at some level is cheap or as even when it's a virtuoso display of it as in Steyer, but but this novel had so much more happening in it as well and I, I just want to return for one minute to the the New York theme and you know like the the this this um, a couple of the passages we've read have this kind of nostalgia for the lost New York which of course is the quality that's that's the feeling that every New Yorker has for all time because we live in a city that's that's you know constantly mutating and also, um, I, I, the way in which I thought this this novel really speaks to this moment beyond its you know vision of social media gone nuts and whatever the political landscape is like you know it's it's a, it's a novel about gentrification and and a, and a changing city you know you know and and and, uh, um, and you know that's one of many reasons that I think it, I think it yeah does will be around twenty years from now. And Nabokov is a great point of comparison because. Like Nabokov, Steingart, I believe, is not a native English speaker. He came to America from Russia as as a child and was not fluent in English. And there's an exuberance to his language and a glee and a joy in what he does with English that I think, at the end, is what marks out his writing as extraordinary. And as as Jody says, takes it beyond what might be a little bit easy about doing a straight sort of social satire. And as the host, I think I'll make that the last word. But I really want to thank Troy Patterson, Jody Rosen, for joining me today to talk about Super Sad True Love Story. For Slate's Audio Book Club, I'm Jacob Weisberg. Weisberg.